You guys, you kids who are staying in here today, this message is for you today. Remember, I want to start off with a story that's kind of funny. It's kind of happened this morning. Is that uh, Samuel decided to uh, make breakfast on his own. Yeah, imagine that. Just hang with me. And so he was making breakfast on his own this morning. And Elizabeth went in and she kind of peeked around into the kitchen just to kind of see what Samuel was doing. And guess what he had? He had toast out there. He had pulled it out of the toaster. He got the Nutella out, you know, Nutella, chocolate, yummy stuff. He was spreading it on there. And then he just so happened to have a box of nerds. And he, he took those nerds and he spread it all over his toast and Nutella. And he had him a fine breakfast. I, mean, I think kids are awesome. I love when things happen like that. And you guys are awesome, and you're awesome in the eyes of God as well. As a matter of fact, this message that I bring, it's not just for adults this morning. It's for you as well. Christ is speaking to you as young men and young women. He's calling you today, and he has a message for you because you're a part of the church today. Now, I realize your attention span is not going to be as, as good as others, but here's what I want to challenge you to do, okay? You can take that sheet inside your mom and dad's bulletin, and you can pull it out and just ask mom and dad for a pen, okay? And I want you, as you're hanging with me in the message, to maybe draw a picture or something that represents the message that I'm going to bring to you today about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then after you draw that, then you go home with mom, and you go home with dad, and you, you talk to them about what this, this message represents. So, can you guys do that? I need feedback. Can you do that, Cameron? All right, will you do that? All right, good. All right. Well, this morning, if you'd open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We're going to look at that this morning. Over my 14 years of marriage, it'll be 15 in, in August, this next August, uh, I have had to learn some lessons. I have had to learn some things, particularly about my wife's love language. Any of you guys with me? You know, there's this thing called love language, you know, that if, if you grew up and you, if you felt love by being touched or if you felt love by affirmation or acts of service or, or kindness, there, there's these particular things that speak love to people. And it's been said by some that if, 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 if two people miss their love languages, relationships can be, be disastrous. Well, fortunately, I've avoided some disasters, but it took me some while to, to learn this because... As a guy, I came into marriage thinking that the universal language of love to my wife would be flowers. And so I made use of flowers in my, in my marriage with, with my wife. And so particularly on those occasions when um, something special was, was coming up and I forgot... And I would run, and because of my busyness or because of my preoccupation, or I, I would run out and I would get some flowers, or, or maybe I would go and I would just take her to an expensive dinner. And so I would come home and I'd, I'd bring these flowers. And, and as I gave them to her, I just kind of, over the years, I kind of noticed, you know, something's missing here. Something's not connecting. But I proceeded with my lack of knowledge and proceeded with the continuing of giving her flowers. And um, until along the way, after many gracious smiles, my wife, in all graciousness, 
kind of caught me on this time. I remember this particular time that I was, uh, she knew exactly what I was doing. I was rushing out because it was one of those occasions, and I had to go get something real quick. You guys know what I'm talking about? And she stopped me, and she said, Matt, I really don't like flowers that much. I mean, they're great and all, but it's not really what I like that much. And what I, what I started through this conversation, I started to put together with her, is that it's not that she didn't appreciate flowers, but what she wanted with the flowers was the thoughts about her. That is, the slowing down and taking time to think about her and what was going on in her life and in, in the thought of, 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 of spending time with her and, and thinking through really what to give her or, or just taking time and, and being with her. It wasn't the flowers so much. It wasn't the, the stuff. I mean, I still give her flowers. As a matter of fact, I found something better than flowers to her. It's dark chocolate. That's, that speaks much more volumes. But what I found, too, though, is that it's good to give those things, but it's to bring them with, with intimacy and, and connection and conversation and time with her. That's what spoke love to her. Sadly, I've found this true in my relationship with Christ as well. Due to various reasons in my life. I mean, I can deliver up bouquets of, of, of good works to Christ. I can deliver Him flowers of, of ministry and counsel to people. And uh, I, can, I can just bring Him just defense of the faith. And I can bring good sermons and theological teachings. And, and I can deliver all these things up to Christ. But when it's devoid of relationship with Him... It doesn't really speak Christ's love language. You see, what Christ wants us to do and to serve for Him, He never wants it to be devoid of intimacy and close fellowship with Him. As a matter of fact, He wants it to be an overflow and an outflow of our love for Him. Is why we do. You guys know what I'm talking about? Do you ever struggle with this, like me? As we go into this new year, we're going to begin a series titled Building for the Journey Ahead. And as a church, we're going to address some, uh, some growth issues, some ways that we can grow in our intimacy with Christ, and, and ways that are going to help us grow together as a body, as a church, and in our effectiveness as a church. But one of the things that concerns me as we, we talk about these goals and uh, things that we want to accomplish as a church is, is that we never make the mistake of minimizing the Christian life to merely doing instead of doing and being in relationship with Christ. We must hold firmly to the truth that our, our doing is an overflow of our being and close intimate relationship. That is, our, our passion for Christ is what ought to drive our service for Christ as a church. Because when it ceases to be our passion that drives us in service, 
we cease to speak the love language of Christ. Well, we're not the first to struggle with this. Matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 2, 1 through 7, Christ addresses such a situation. All right, he begins there in verse 1, and he says to the angel, or we could translate this as to the messenger. While, while angel can refer to heavenly beings, I think it refers here to earthly beings or earthly messengers, probably a chief representative of the church here in Ephesus. And this church was uh, not just any church. Just to give you a little background about the church in Ephesus. Is the church in Ephesus was partly the gospel was brought by the ministry partners of Aquila and Priscilla ministry partners of Paul. There's also a place where a very gifted teacher, a man named Apollos, went and he taught. It was also the place where Paul went and ministered for three years in this city. It was a place where Paul's protege came, Timothy came, and he ministered to that. And then later this church had the ministry of the Apostle John there before and after his exile. How would you like to be the pastor that had to follow in those footsteps? It'd be like following up John Piper, John MacArthur, and Chuck Swindoll. This is a a church that had a strong foundation, a strong and stellar leadership. But Christ has something to say to them. We know it's Christ because in the rest of the verses it it says, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. This speaks of his authority over the elders of the church. Those are the stars. The elders, the chiefs, representing the church. These are under Christ's authority. We as pastors, as elders, we're just merely under shepherds of the chief shepherd. It's Christ who has authority in his church. And we're in submission to him. He's the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. The seven gold lampstands, Revelation 1 tells us, these are the churches. And Christ is present. And he's walking amongst them. It speaks to his presence and his activity amongst the church. Isn't that comforting to know? That Christ is active and he's walking amongst us and he's present here with us? Those are words of comfort. He said he would never leave us nor forsake us and he keeps that word. He's he's a God who is active amongst his people. And as he walks amongst this church here, he begins to take evaluation and notice of things that are going on and he says this in verse 2 he says i know your deeds i know speaks of complete and full knowledge he says i know your deeds or or your actions or tasks and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary Look at those verses there. Note note the verbs of action that that Christ is commending on this church. He begins with praise here. First of all, he recognizes that they're a serving church. This is a church that is active, doing works for God. The very thing which we were created, recreated for in Christ. They're busy in all kinds of service, no doubt, throughout the week. they They are full of activities. They were also a sacrificing church. This word toil speaks of labor, and not just any kind of labor, but it speaks of labor to the point of weariness. These people were, were not just spectator Christians. They weren't just Christians who were sitting in the stands and just watching, hey, that's good, look what's all that's going on. 
But they were people who were involved and that were giving of themselves. They were efforting themselves for the cause of Christ. They're also a steadfast church. The word perseverance there speaks to literally, it speaks to two words. It speaks to to abide under. It, it, It speaks of the idea of the capacity or ability to endure, to remain under pressure or pain. These people have persevered for the cause of Christ. They had faced difficulties. They had faced struggles. They have faced persecutions. And they were persevering under these things for Christ. So Christ commends them for their active involvement. But look what he also commends them for. He commends them for their defense of of biblical truth and doctrine and behavior. Look what he first says in there. He says, they did not tolerate evil men. That is, when evil things were going on and people were doing evil things, they didn't get squeamish and go, you know, I I really don't want to offend them. I mean, that's a temptation. The temptation of the church is to see something going on, and as a leader, you know, you just kind of, the temptation is, you know, I'm just going to turn my head. Pretend I didn't see that. They didn't do that. They didn't bear with that kind of stuff. They dealt with it. They no doubt enacted church discipline when necessary. Matter of fact, in verse 6, Christ gives an example of how they handled this or how they fought towards these, these evil men. It says in verse 6, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You say, what? Hate's kind of harsh. But look, what, look who says, I also hate those things. Christ. Which I also hate. You say, well, who are the Nicolaitans? Well, we're not exactly sure, but we think the Nicolaitans were a, 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 a heretical group that basically they perverted the grace of God. Basically, they replaced the liberty that we have in Christ, the freedom we have in Christ, and they said, let's just have license and let's do whatever we want, particularly in the area of sexual immorality. And they hated sin. Here in the church, just like Christ. They were on page with Christ about these things. And so they dealt with it. They're also a church that had spiritual discernments. Look what it says there. And they have put to test those who claim to be the apostles. This, they remembered what uh, Apostle Paul had said to them. Matter of fact, if you go back into Acts chapter 20, verses 20 through 31. There's a time when Apostle Paul is on his last missionary journey or third missionary journey and he's on his way back to Jerusalem and he stops and he calls for the elders from Ephesus and he pleads with them. He pleads with them to guard the flock, to watch over the flock, to protect the people, to guard for those false prophets, those false teachers. He actually literally calls them those savage wolves who will seek to draw your people away. They did that. They didn't let just anyone come in and speak in their pulpit. They examined the character of the people who would come. They would examine the message that these so-called apostles would preach. They would examine who followed these apostles as well. They had spiritual discernments. The church in Ephesus, they they persevered in defense of the purity of doctrine and behavior. And they did it because they didn't want to allow the name of Christ to be impugned. They didn't want the name of Christ to be diminished in their church. They, They defended doctrine and behavior. And Christ commends them for this. This is a solid church. 
This is a church I'd want to be a part of. This is a church I would want to be. But verse 4 says, but. Whenever you see that conjunction, but, you always got to take notice. Unfortunately, this is not a positive one. He says, but this, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Christ had come, and he'd come in with a commendation to them. He said, I commend you for your works. I, I commend you for your laboring. I, I commend you for your persevering in trials for my name's sake. But this I have against you, you have left your first love. The word first here is not sequential as in one, two, three, but it's first in time, first in rank or, or place. That is, the, the one who should have primary position in your life, you have left. You have left your first love. Christ is not talking about when or how these believers felt when they first came to Christ. But he's reproving them because their love of him is no longer preeminence in their life. They're doing good things. They're working hard. But they have left behind an intimacy with Christ. That is, they have Jesus in their heads. They have Jesus on their hands. But their hearts, Jesus does not have. Their affection for Christ has diminished. When I look at this, this reminds me of a passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3. And this is where Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. And he writes this. This is when Paul is praying for them. And he says, constantly bearing in mind your work. By the way, this is the same word. This work here is the same word for deeds in Revelation. Your work of faith and your, your labor. This is the same word for toil. Your labor of love. And steadfast, the same word for perseverance, your steadfastness of hope of our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Do you feel the difference there? Before he commended them about their work and their, their labor and their steadfastness, but when, when Paul here is praying for the same things and commending the church at Thessalonica, it feels different. That is, the Thessalonians' works or deeds are described as ones of faith. Faith in who? Christ. Their labor or toil is described as, as love. Love for who? Christ and no doubt others. Their steadfastness or persevering hope is, is hope in who? It's in Christ. The Thessalonians were doing their work centered on the person of Christ. But the church in Ephesus lacked this. The church in Ephesus, their works were not an outflow of their close fellowship with Christ. It was not out of love for Christ. What's the chief command that Christ gives us? It's to love the Lord thy God with all our hearts, with all our soul, with all our might, with all our strength. To love thy neighbor as thyself. One of the prayers that uh, I have for my children, one of the abiding prayers that I have is that uh, I will often go in and I will put my hand on my children's head and I, I will pray over them and I'll pray, Lord, help them to love the Lord thy God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul and all their strength. And the reality is, I don't know about you, but I need to pray that for myself often. 
Because see, labor is never a substitute for love for Christ. Labor for Christ is never a substitute for love for Christ. And I quote that. Christ wants our whole heart. And I don't know about you, but I am like the hymnist who wrote, For I am prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I'm prone to leave my love for Christ. I'm prone to make it mechanical. So the question for me is, how does this happen? How do, we, how do we go from a people who love Christ and had affection for Christ and then it later to be said about us or we could say about ourselves, we've left our first love? I, I want to suggest three things to you and hopefully this, this speaks to you. And I found these as suggested in a book by Randy Madison called The Pursuing Intimacy with God. And I've adapted these a little bit. But he shared three reasons. And the, and the first one is this. We, when we choose duty over devotion, that can lead to leaving our first love. When we choose duty over devotion, that is, when, when we begin to depart from a vibrant love for Christ, when doing or our, our duty becomes a replacement for devotion for Christ. When it becomes duty, he says, becomes just, you know what? This is my communion with Christ. It's, it's, it's the attitude where we begin to think, you know, I'm doing ministry here, I'm doing ministry here. Of course I'm close to Christ because, look, I'm doing all these things for Him. I'm serving Him in all, for Him in all these different ways. I must be close to Him. The reality is, when we serve devoid of intimacy with Christ... We fail to be filled up and we end up dry spiritually. And we end up leaving behind our first love. This is sometimes the, what we could call the Martha syndrome. Remember the story of Mary and Martha? Remember them? Remember Jesus is here. It's in Luke chapter, uh, chapter 10. And remember Jesus is here. He's, he's in their home. He's in their home and he's, he's teaching them. He's been there. He's talking. And you imagine, I mean, he's not just out speaking the masses. He's in their home, sitting in their living room, sharing truth with them and, and time with them. And I mean, they can have conversation with Christ. And what's Martha doing? Well, the scriptures say that Martha was distracted by all her preparation. She's running around the house and she's doing her duty and getting everything straight. And matter of fact, she begins to get so focused on her duty, she begins to get frustrated at her sister. And she turns around and, and questions Jesus. Well, does this Jesus make any sense that my sister's not going around helping? And matter of fact, she is so caught up and consumed in her duty that she tells Jesus what to do. She says, do you tell her to get busy serving? But look what Jesus says to her. Let me, let me read it to you. It's informative to us. Jesus said, Lord, the Lord answered and said to Martha, Martha. Can you just imagine that? He probably just said it real slow because she was just, you know, going so fast. And he says it real slow to her. You are worried and bothered by, about so many things. But the only thing, one thing is necessary. 
For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. The part that Mary had chosen as she was sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's the good part. Now, let me make something very clear. Again, I'm not saying that Christ doesn't want us to do good works. That he doesn't want us to serve. Don't go out of here saying, you know what, I'm just going to drop every ministry I have. All right, please don't do that. That would make my job so hard. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is don't get so caught up in your duty and your service for me that you neglect devotion to me. Don't do it. In fact, if we do that, we will miss what the Christian life is about. And the Christian life will become fuzzy when we leave devotion out for Christ. Matter of fact, when I remember in, in seminary when I first had to get glasses, um, I was so busy in seminary. I was often rushing off the class and because my days were full of activity. They were full of, of work and all those things. And uh, sometimes there would be a, a morning class or a chapel or all, all different kinds of things. And I remember sometimes even an evening class. And I would sometimes rush out and uh, I, would, I would rush there because there was important ministry stuff to be learned in these classes at seminary. But sometimes I would get there and, you know, the teacher would be, all right, great, Matt's here again, that's a good thing. But I would get there and, and I, I arrived and I, as I began to look around, I noticed that the teacher looked fuzzy. I couldn't really make out the teacher or... Or I couldn't really see the overheads or, or, or the board was, was all fuzzy looking. I couldn't really even mat, you know, take all the notes and get all the information and things that I needed. And then all of a sudden I would realize, oh, I left my glasses at home. I left them there. And I can remember where I left them, sitting on the table and right by where I was studying. But in, in all my hurry, I, I had left the thing that helped make everything clearer to me. And fuller. Because I left them, everything was fuzzy. And I'm going to warn you right now. When you leave out devotion for Christ and just duty, the Christian life will be fuzzy and it will not be all it was meant to be. You will not see the full blessings and experience the full blessings unless your duty for Christ is driven out of a devotion for Christ. Don't leave your glasses behind. Don't leave your love for Christ behind. Now, there's another reason besides choosing duty over devotion, there's choosing busyness over best. We live in a society full of choices. There are so many things to pursue. There are so many opportunities I need, I need to give my children so to think. Or there, there are so many gadgets. Our society is always telling us that more is better and you can do it all. Let me tell you something. You can't. But we've become preoccupied with busyness and all the opportunities of life. And what happens is, is when we exhaust ourselves physically and emotionally and we empty ourselves spiritually because we're so busy. And it's not that some of these things aren't good or that we shouldn't do them. But the reality is we have to have margin, we have to have balance, and we have to have priority in our lives to choose what's not just good but what is best. I'm going to tell you right now, it's not best if you're allowing the busyness of your life to push out 
the most important relationship that you can ever have in your life. It's not best. We have to make time. We have to cut out stuff to make Christ's priority. Sometimes we can lose our love for Christ because we have just become complacent. We have complacency over pursuit. As a second generation believer, I do not remember not hearing the name of Christ in my home. I know nothing else but Christ. It's so easy for me if I don't go back and realize, even though that I wasn't a drug dealer before I came to Christ, I came to Christ when I was six, even though I don't have this horrible story, I am still a sinner who was saved by grace. It's imperative that I go back to that and realize that I was just as much a child of wrath as anyone else. Or else I can let my faith in Christ become one of complacency. As Americans, we live in a comfortable Christianity for the most part. We do not really even know what it means to suffer for Christ. So we become complacent. Sometimes complacency just, just comes because we're lazy. No, I won't have you raise your hand. That is, we can begin to exercise or begin to coast in the exercise of our spiritual disciplines. We just don't really pursue them. What's interesting is I was studying this passage, and as I heard it put once, this, this love, this first love is an agape love it speaks of in, in uh, verse 4. But I heard it said once that agape love is not just unconditional love, but it's also a pursuing love. Do you ever think about that? That Christ not only loved us unconditionally, but he, he pursued you and I. He came after us even when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. And it's this kind of love that Christ is calling us to and that the Ephesians have left. That is, our love for Christ ought to be one that we pursue Him. That we're not complacent, but we're pursuing Him. We're going after Him. God has given us spiritual disciplines, not as tools of legalism, but as tools to pursue Him. You pursue Christ when you pray. You pursue Christ when you study His Word. You pursue Christ when you take a time of silence and and meditate before Him. That's pursuit of Christ. So how do we restore this renew and renew our love for Christ? How How do we balance my duty? How do we prioritize our busyness? How do we renew this pursuit of the person of Jesus Christ? Well, Christ answers that for us. He says in verse 5, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. He starts with three things in this first half of this verse. First thing he says is he says, remember. Remember. Forgetfulness is often the first step in spiritual decline. But he says, don't forget. He says, go back. Remember where you have fallen from. Go back and remember the times of intimacy with me. Maybe it was just after you came to Christ and everything was fresh and new. Maybe it was other memories in your life when you were meditating upon me and you were conversing with me and spending time in my word with me. Literally says, this word is keep on remembering. Keep on remembering these things. Not about you, but it helps me to do that in my marriage sometimes. I get complacent in my marriage. 
I get busy in my marriage sometimes. I get filled with all the tasks and duties that a, a dad is supposed to do. And I have to go back in my marriage. I have to go back to those times when I was in seminary and I would go to school all day and I would work from 5 to 10 and then I would drive 45 minutes just to go and spend an hour with Elizabeth. And then I would get up and I would do it all over again. Why? Because I loved her. I had affection for her. I have to go back to those times when I loved her so much. I did this little special thing when we got engaged. I took her to Cincinnati, and it was snowing that day. And I took her up on this place called Mount Everest, which overlooks the Ohio River. And I walked her out in front of this church, and I reached in my pocket, and I, I pulled out this, this, this ring for her. I have to go back to those times that, that drove me for that love for her. I have to go back to the to other times in our marriage. Or we just get away from the kids for a while. That's a great thing to do. And we get away from them and we spend time alone. Maybe it's just at Johnny Carino's and we don't even have a big agenda, but we just enjoy eating something spicy there and just talking. I can go back to those times with her. And it's the same thing we have to do in our relationship with Christ. We have to go back and remember those times. Don't forget how sweet the fellowship is with Christ. When we're seeking intimacy with them. One way we do this is by remembering the cross. This is why we have the Lord's Supper. Because we go back to remember that He first loved us and that's why we want to love Him. One man I know of, each morning, the way that he tries to remember the cross is that each morning that he gets up, he slips out of bed. He has made it a practice where he slips out of bed and he, he prostrates himself on the floor. And I'm not saying we all do this, but this is what he does. And when he does that, and that morning he begins to pray as his face is embedded in that carpet, he'll, he'll say something like this, Lord, may your cross be the driving force in my life today. With every person and every action, every meeting, may your cross be before me, may it be behind me, may it be all around me. And that was his way, that is his way of remembering the love that Christ had for him and how he should pour out his love and his affection for Christ. Go back. Remember. Second, Christ says repent. Repentance is simply this, folks. It's a change of mind. You were thinking one way. And in the case of the church at Ephesus, they were, they were thinking not of affection for Christ, but just doing. It's, it's a change of mind that you take a U-turn that leads to a change of action. He says, church at Ephesus, quit going that way. Repent and go back the way that you're supposed to. Return to your love for Christ. And then he says, repent and do the deed you did at first. You say, well, the deed you did at first, well, Christ is not calling for more Christian service or renewed Christian activity. They've got enough of that. What he's calling to is he's calling to a quality of work. He says, go back to the way that you did the deeds that you toiled and you labored and persevered before. Out of a passion for me. In essence, he's saying, let your passion for me drive your service for me. I think it also means to go back to the things that fueled your devotion for Christ. I'm just going to share with you how I often try to do this, but not often enough. Personally, when I know I am so busy, matter of fact, there's a book called uh, Too Busy Not to Pray. I never even read the full book. The title did, it, did enough for me. Too busy not to pray. And when I get that way, what I have to do is I have to take time away. And I, and I love this little tool here because I have my music on it. 
And I like to just get away and I put my headphones on and I listen to a song. And it centers me on Christ. Then I'll take some time and I just get quiet. I get out his word and I read and I pause and I think. Sometimes when I'm too distracted, I know that I have to pen it, pull out. And I don't like to always do this, but I pull out a pen and a paper and I, and I just journal some thoughts. Because it, it forces me to not get distracted, but to think upon my time with Christ and what he's saying to me. I need to go back to that. Maybe you've never done things like that. And I'm not talking like you do that for hours or anything like that. I'm just talking start with five minutes of that. And build upon that. Commune with them. Then last, he says this in the second part of verse 5. We need to realize the consequences. Christ takes this serious, folks. He takes it serious. He says in this, he says, repent. Redo the deed you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. In essence, he's saying, I'm going to extinguish your light. I'm going to take you out of effectiveness in this community. Matter of fact, Christ would rather not have a church there than have a loveless church. He takes it serious. Christ then closes with this. He says, He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, not just to the Ephesus, but to us as well. Hear what I'm saying. Let your passion for Christ move you to service for Christ. And then he closes with just a little promise to them. He says, To him who overcomes, and overcomers are simply those who all believe in Christ, who truly believe in Christ. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in paradise of God. He's saying, guys, remember this. Remember what's ahead. As you persevere and as you toil, oh, have intimacy with me because I'm the one who has promised you eternity in heaven with God. He begins with commendation. He gives some concern and correction, and he closes it with a, a promise. Isn't that just like God and his graciousness? In Robert Boyd Younger's, Munger's classic book, My Heart, Christ's Home, it's a fictional story that tells the story of a man who rushes out the door one day with the Lord sitting in the den by the fireplace, waiting to commune and communicate with the man. Evidently, the duties and the busyness of this man's life had, have led to a cooling and a waning of his loving devotion for Christ. His spiritual complacency had led to a, a laziness that, led, that diminished his pursuit of intimacy with Christ. In the story, though, as one day as this man is rushing out on a stress-filled morning, he, he glances over his shoulder. And as he glances, he sees the Lord sitting there. And, and at this time, as he glances, he just happens to pause. And then a question comes to to mind, and he asks Jesus a question, and he discovers through this question that Christ has been there every morning waiting for renewed communication and connection with his child. This conversation with this man leads to him, or with Christ leads to this man stopping the day and sitting there to 
converse with his Lord. As the story goes on, this brief glance by followed by this conversation with the Lord changes this man's life completely. He begins to cut away at the busyness of his life. He begins to put his duties in perspective with a balanced pursuit of Christ. It changes him as he begins to pursue an intimate, personal, close fellowship with the Savior. I'm here to tell you this morning that uh, Christ has given you an opportunity to glance at him this morning. I don't know where you are. I don't know if it's complacency or busyness or duty. But I'm sure there are some of us who are rushing through our walk with Christ. And Christ says, I just want you to glance at me. Stop. And converse with me. And I'll tell you this, believer. As you do that, it'll change your life. It'll change you. You'll be blessed by an intimacy with Christ. As you let the passion for Christ drive your service for Christ, your life will be fuller and it will be changed amongst the difficulties of life. As the band comes forward, I ask you that you might just bow your heads and, and just close your eyes for a moment. And before I pray, I want to give you an opportunity to glance a little bit longer at Christ. I want to give you a time that in the quietness of your heart that you might converse with Him. Maybe you can practice repentance in your heart. Maybe you can confess as all of us, and repentance is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. God's pulling at your heart to to repent, it's a good thing. Respond to Him. Maybe you have busyness or duty over devotion or complacency to confess. Confess it to Him. And ask Him, all right, Lord, how, how do I go back and do the things before? So just as your heads are bowed, just spend some quietness. Just bow your heads. Be quiet before the Lord, and then I will close in prayer. God, I I come. I come as one who is need to be repentant so many times, and even recently, Lord. This message is as much for me than anyone else. Lord, I am one who is so guilty of being full of duty and lacking of devotion. It's so easy for me to fall into that, Lord. And I got a nice title as a pastor to excuse it. And Lord, I confess that. Forgive me. Lord, help me to be one who is fooled with affection for you. Help me be one to repent and redo the deeds that I've done before by abiding in you. 
Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that they too will long for affection with you, that they will follow your counsel here, that they will remember, they will repent and redo. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you as Savior, Lord. They have never even come to know your love truly, and I pray that they will come to a place of repentance and faith in their life, that they will turn to you as Savior, and they will enter into a relationship with you. Lord, help us to be as a church in the days ahead as we look at goals we want to set to be a people who are driven by a deep and abiding affection and love for you. May be a passion for you, Lord, that moves us to serve you, to make your name great, to make your name known, and to glorify you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who first loved us, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.